This is where High Plains Drifter nabbed its ghostly, supernatural elements and its final sting from. And I still prefer that Eastwood classic, but some of the cinematography here in this thing, it blew me away. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got ourselves a supernatural western. And just saying that, it feels like I've said enough. And I say it because I don't want to spoil anyone's enjoyment of seeing this for the first time. Like... I want you to have that same experience I had. According to Letterboxd, less than 900 people have marked this one as seen. And it is really odd because that early imagery on the screen, it is enough to pull you in. Simple synopsis. You wake up, there's a cross in the street with your name in it. And that means by the end of that day, you're going to wind up dead. That's a pretty tough one to forget. It's Django the Bastard. You want me? Pretty simple letterbox synopsis, this one. He's got a cross with your name on it. A Union soldier returns from the dead to take revenge on three officers who betrayed his unit in battle. Now, for an MVP here, I am going to say that watching it, I recognise Django's face. I swear I'd seen him in like a Fulci movie or something like that, but it turns out it was wrong. The actor... He's a spaghetti western legend, it turns out, and he's named Anthony Staffan. He passed away at the age of 73 back in 2004, and he left a legacy of eight horror movies, two of which have seen. So yeah, there's this one, uh, Django the Bastard, but I also recognised him from Emilio Miraglia's 1971 Giallo, The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave. And if you're a regular listener, you'll know I desperately tried to find the 1966 horror called An Angel for Satan when I did that big hitter episode for 1966, but I just couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, He shares the lead in that one with the goddess that is Barbara Steele. But there is also Killer Fish from 1979 with Karen Black and Lee Majors. That's got to be worth watching. It's already on my list. And another three worth mentioning here are Tropic of Cancer from 72, The Supernatural Gialli from 1975 called Evil Eye, and the incredibly underseen Moments of Pleasure and Agony from 1983, where sexual politics play a massive part in this thing, apparently, 
And I bet being from 1983 and Italian, that one will be dealing with those very sensitive subjects very sensitively. Now this music does sound like a cross between a Western and James Bond, not gonna lie. And just like High Plains Drifter, it never really ventures into any stereotypical horror scare. There's no eerie nothing like that. This one simply focuses on the Wild West tropes. And I don't have a lot to report on it to be honest, except that the music is by Vasco and Macuso. Uh, and it's a great rip on those Eastwood starring spaghetti westerns. It's all you need to know. It's nothing special, but, you know, it's far from shit. And as I say, I do believe that Django the Bastard is definitely worth a watch definitely worth finding and if you feel the need this is where you can find it in the us you can actually stream this one for free on tubi and in the uk i couldn't find it anywhere except for free on youtube as for podcasts you're going to be looking at one called blood and black rum podcast they had their say on django the bastard back in april of 2019 and death by video spoke about it for an hour in 2021 and i just want to say it one more time because i'm allowed to this film was called django the bastard Vincent Price and Christopher Lee starring in this, I thought it would be a flat out number one contender for sure. And also, when I looked into that initial list of movies that I put together for uh, 1969, this big episode, well, this was one that I couldn't wait to see. Probably the one that I couldn't wait to see. Also, it's an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation as well. I know it's pretty flimsy if you want to say it's an adaptation proper, but... I would still say it is. I mean, how can you go wrong with that? Well, this one carries about it a curse. There is also a theme in this of colonial exploitation as well, and that isn't handled as awfully as you would expect for a film from this time period. And well, those two massive horror legends, well, they do only share one scene together. And the issue with it on this watch and why it isn't as high on my list as it feels like uh, it should be is because it just feels like another horror film on the block for the time. It doesn't break any new ground. I mean, there is a little bit of sex, there's a little bit of gore, which was interesting. 
And it was a massive success at the time, probably because it pushed those boundaries just that little bit more than what you would expect. I would say that it is definitely worth checking out because of those two legends. They meet on screen for the first time, but I would have just loved more. More gore, more sex, and more of those two just hamming it up together. Plus, Christopher Lee, he is wearing the worst wig. It's the oblong box. To assist you in your experiments. Waking up in that horrible oblong box, no air to breathe, every shovelful raining down on the lid. God, Trench, do you know what that means? It means that my brother was buried alive. So here's your letterbox synopsis. Some things are better left buried. Aristocrat Julian Markham keeps his disfigured brother, Sir Edward, locked in a tower of his house. Occasionally, Sir Edward escapes and causes havoc around the town. Now, I have to bring up here Gordon Hessler. He is the director of The Oblong Box. He also directed, wait for it, wait for it, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. He directed that in 1978, which I cannot wait to speak about on the main channel. It's going to be an upcoming mid-month episode with the band Torso. Anyway, enough about the advertisement here. Hessler was a German-born Brit who passed away at the age of 88 in 2014. And in all honesty, even though he got his start mingling with Hitchcock on the Hitchcock Presents TV series, looking at his back catalogue, he does come across, and it's not just in horror, he does come across as a bit of a hack. Which can work out with the films that I love. I've no problem with it. Three quarters of my time spent watching films is critiquing hack horror. But let's go through this back catalogue because there's a couple of interesting choices. He begins with the Catacombs, a.k.a. the woman who wouldn't die. So yeah, he began this movie directorial career in 1964 with this one. And it has a great poster. So there is that. And then we've got the Oblong Box in 69. And we follow it with Scream and Scream Again. Uh, that's in 1970 that came out. Uh, and I know I've seen it, but I can't remember at all. Although, once again, I do remember being really annoyed that it had a great poster and it oversold the film. In 1970, the same year as Scream and Scream Again, we've got another Vincent Price movie called Cry of the Banshee. Uh, that came out at that point. And once again... It looks fantastic. It's also got an occult edge about it. My worry, though, is that it's got another great poster. In 1973, we go to a film with not such a great poster. It's a hagsploitation film. It's called Scream Pretty Peggy. And then we finish off his horror career with a TV movie in 77. Uh, and it's called The Strange Possession of Mrs. Oliver. And this is the one that I'm looking forward to the most because it stars horror goddess Karen Black. And the synopsis also sounds great. It says, 
A housewife, tired of her everyday routine, makes changes in her hair, her wardrobe and her makeup and begins to take on the personality of a woman who had died five years earlier. And that, peoples, is your horror lot for Gordon Hassler. Robertson composed this music to the Oblong Box and as you just heard it's pretty standard of the time very much sounding like the hammer horror pastiche that it clearly is and that's not surprising because his most notable work I think was on the hammer production called The Vampire Lovers I'm sure you already know that but he did the score to that as well and you know there's nothing wrong with this it's a formula that is not broken so why fix it It's in keeping with the way in which this one has been filmed as well. I was happy to have found that snippet that I got on YouTube and just listened to it in isolation a few times. But really, I can only file this one under. It does the job. And I don't know if I've sold it to you, but as I say, I would definitely recommend it for just those two being on screen together for the first time. Where can you find it? Well, in the USA, it's a low-cost rental on Apple TV. And in the UK, it's the same deal, but on Prime at the moment. As for a physical copy, I think there's a Spanish import knocking about, and that's a Blu-ray, but there's not a lot else out there right now, which means I reckon you can probably view it for free somewhere on YouTube. And finally, as for podcasts, General Witchfinders podcast, they had their 90-minute say on the Oblong Box back in February 2022, and a History of Rock and Roll film podcast, well, they paired it with The Crimson Ghost for their October 2022 special. That is all we've got to say about the Oblong Box. This next one, I rented it on YouTube. And when it gets the tone right, it is a quite subversive take on mental illness for the time anyway. Sure, a lot of it is old hat for horror fans, especially if you're watching it right now for the first time. But the subterfuge in it, it really works until the very rushed ending. Well, at least it did the job for me. I think that's good enough at this point. Also, I want a big shout out right now to the murderous children that are just delicious in horror movies. Also, please, can you stop hurting dogs in horror movies? Jesus Christ, every film right now, someone is hurting a dog. Stop it. Come on. Anyway, 
I can't see many people having seen this one, so I reckon what I've just said, bunched up with a synopsis, is going to have to be enough for you to know whether you want more, I reckon. This is called The Mad Room. Unfortunately, Mrs. Armstrong had to leave town on business. But I am sure when she returns, we will be able to tell her we have gone over the top and we have given until it hurts. I am here to make my husband's money. I suggest we the cutters. Alan will take down each pledge. I pledge $1,000. Mrs. Smithers pledges $1,000. Mrs. Samuel H. Brown, what do you pledge? Ladies, please, ladies, I must have order. I pledge one free massage and all the benefits that go with it. If you didn't hear me, I pledge one massage to each woman in this room. In other words, along with getting a plaque, each donor gets a free massage from my husband, Armand. He gives the greatest massage in the world. Now, if you don't believe me, you ask Mrs. Armstrong. I repeat, one free massage with every donation. Why, the great Armand will bring joy to your body. He'll rid you of your wrinkles and take that fat away from your midriff. <sighs> well, do I have any offers? Don't raise your hand, just raise your leg. <laughs> now, this letterbox synopsis gives a fair bit away, but I think it's just right to sort of get you going in. It's what gave me the bug to watch it, so yeah, let, let me run it by you. Ellen Hardy gets a rude awakening when she discovers that her brother and her sister are scheduled to leave their mental institution. As children, they were put there after killing their parents. Ellen, who now lives in the house of an old widow, Mrs Armstrong, takes them in. But if their secret gets out, it could jeopardise Ellen's plans to wed Mrs Armstrong's stepson. She struggles with anxiety until Mrs Armstrong suddenly turns up dead. And there you have it. MVP time, well, I've got to go for the lead with this one. It's Stella Stevens. Now, she is best known for her non-horror stuff. Specifically, I'm thinking her roles in the 1963 film The Nutty Professor with Jerry Lewis. And I also think maybe, probably equally for her role in the uh, assembled cast of The Poseidon Adventure in 72. I don't know how I know this, so don't ask me. I just knew it somewhere in the back of my head that she'd done a song. So I looked it up and I found it. It's a song that she did for the 1970 Western. Uh, she starred in that called The Ballad of Cable Hogue. And she plays a sex worker in that. Well, don't believe me. Oh, I see. Well, here's a snippet. Butterfly mornings. Butterfly mornings. Butterfly mornings and wildflower afternoons. Catch me there, gonna get me there. I have to climb all the mountains on the moon. I'll be in butterfly mornings, butterfly mornings, butterfly mornings and wildflower. So yeah, there we go. That was Stella Stevens with Butterfly Morning from the film The Ballad of Cable Hogue. Now, 
Clearly, a musical career wasn't forthcoming, but a horror career was. It wasn't a biggie, it wasn't golden full of mega hits, but it's good enough for me. So, we begin with a downbeat one because unfortunately the following film on from The Mad Room was a comedy horror called Arnold. And it's the only one I've seen of The Batch, but I really disliked it. And I mean, I really disliked it. Roddy McDowell couldn't save it. Uh, If anything, he made the thing worse. It's just horrible. That's called Arnold. (laughs) But there are some others as well. So, and I haven't seen any of these, as I said. Next up in 78, she turned up again. And this is the one I want to see the most uh, in an Egyptian-themed TV horror movie called Cruise Into Terror. And she starred alongside Face from the A-Team, a.k.a. Burt Benedict, and the magnificent Christopher George. And he starred in loads of great early 80s horror staples. He was in, off the top of my head, Pieces. I think he was also in House by the Cemetery. Uh, He's in a couple of um, Italian ones anyway, from that period. The Minotaur come out in the same year, that's 78. I don't know anything about that one. And then two more comedy horrors followed in the 80s. She was in Wacko and Monster in the Closet. Both of them have pretty decent posters, so I'm not giving up hope. And I've marked them both as to be watched, so they're on my list. And at this point from the 90s until a film called Megaconda, that was in 2010, Steven starred in seven more straight-to-video horrors. I guess it looked like all that big-budget stuff that was then behind her. It'll be interesting to find out how they all played out as uh, she got older. And as I speak with you now, she's actually just turned 84. And to be honest with you, I just simply hope that anything else that she's been in equals the stellar turn that she made in the mad room. here by Dave Grusin is pretty damn smart. How best to say this? I think this thing feels a little off, but only some of the time. Some of the time, it's actually fantastic. Makes me feel a little bit wonky, a little bit woozy. There are moments that feel really childlike and playful, and then there are others that just capture the essence of things not being totally fine. There's a lot of fluty playing in this as well, And when it's at its most traditional, it feels like a complete missed opportunity. That's the downside. Because I just want it to stick to the awkward strings and having it dance around the recognisable. I just want it to be left of centre on everything it's doing. Because that's what's happening on the screen. But you can decide for yourself. I found the, the score on YouTube. I listened to it a fair few times now. And to be honest, I do think it's one of the better 1969 scores for sure. If only it was just a touch weirder, I think I might have loved it and I think I would have come back to it. As it is, probably not. 
If you want to have a go yourself though, where can you find the film? Well, you can only stream it for free if you live in the USA and you have Tubi. Other than that, as I mentioned, I rented the thing on YouTube, but I think you'll find it everywhere to rent on whatever channel you like to use. I think it is just generally out there. As for podcasts, this is it. So if I haven't done a good job of making you maybe putting this on your list, then I'm really sorry, The Mad Room. I think I failed you. There are no full episodes about this one anywhere. Maybe someone's talking about the director somewhere, but I didn't care. I just wanted some more info on this thing, and there was just none to find. Number four in my 1969 rundown, it's Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. And fiddle my old boots, does Hammer Studios go in very hard with this one? They make Peter Cushing's Dr. Frankenstein a rapist and a murderer. This is Hammer's fifth instalment of the franchise, and I reckon it could possibly do with a 20-minute trim and either just go full on with Frankenstein's a bastard, or just leave that sort of thing out altogether, one or the other. As it stands, we're left with this fantastic story, but it's based on a pretty flabby and a pretty ridiculous script with the dodgy tone, and there's quite a few lethargic set pieces in this thing that I could have really done without. It could have done with maybe a smarter edit or a neat rewrite, and it's quite telling that both writers here in Burt Batt and Anthony Newton Keyes, they were both incidentally producers by trade. Well, they never struck again in a writing capacity. And yet, after this film finishes, you feel like you've been through it. And I think the reason is because no matter what script or direction he's given, Peter Cushing just powers through it. He is the real monster in this thing in every way. This is Frankenstein must be destroyed. I can transplant his brain. If I don't, it'll die through lack of oxygen. In his nightmare mind, one more horror, one last horrendous act. Frankenstein must be destroyed. Frankenstein must be destroyed. Peter Cushing, Veronica Carlson. Frankenstein must be destroyed. This picture has been rated M, suggested for mature audiences. And this is how the letterbox synopsis reports on this movie. The most frightening Frankenstein movie ever. Blackmailing a young couple to assist with his horrific experiments, the Baron, desperate for vital medical data, abducts a man from an insane asylum. En route, the abductee dies, and the Baron and his assistant transplant his brain into the corpse. The creature is tormented by a trapped soul in an alien shell, and after a visit to his wife, who violently rejects his monstrous form, 
the creature wreaks his revenge on the perpetrator of his misery is Dr. Baron Frankenstein. And well, if I was going to choose an MVP here, then Peter Cushing is miles above any other potential picks. But maybe it is worth bringing up Veronica Coulson, who I instantly recognised from her minor role as Daphne. That was in the 1975 film The Ghoul, which also stars Peter Cushing, funnily enough. Uh, and of course, I've also got to mention that Maxine Audley, she's still kicking about in this, and she did this fantastic performance as Mrs. Stevens in the 1960 movie Peeping Tom. But even with this sort of stellar female supporting cast here, Cushing, he just smashes this whole thing through. He grabs his check, he blasts onto his next film, which incidentally was Scream and Scream Again, which is directed also by Gordon Hessler, who we mentioned earlier. Uh, what was that film? That was The Oblong Box. Uh, but Peter Cushing, he is just a juggernaut at this point in time. You can't stop him. more like it that was the opening theme to frankenstein must be destroyed and it was composed by james bernard it is perfect hammer horror fair a full orchestra just bounds into play at several points in this film when peter cushing gets really bolshy and murderous and yet those quieter strings utilizing the suspense driven periods they're equally as iconically scored it's very impressive. It's exactly what you want when you're watching a Hammer Horror, I reckon. It may be a product of a bygone age, and you can instantly date it to Hammer films to the 60s and the 70s, but I just absolutely love it. So, if you want to be watching Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, well, for this one in both the USA and the UK, you can rent it all over the place. I rented it myself on Prime. Uh, as for Blu-rays, it is out there, but I think it's now out of print, so just expect to pay just that little bit too much for what it is right now. And finally, for podcasts monster attack podcast they covered frankenstein must be destroyed on their january 2022 episode and in october of 2021 post credits podcast they did the same thing but it was a little bit more in depth and that is that As with the majority of movies that I'm covering here for this month, from 1969 of course, I can't get too spoilerific with this one, as it would seem so few people have seen them. So, with that being said, my next pick for this stack of films from 1969 is Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice. And 
Maybe the most confusing thing about this one happens to be the title itself. Of course, it's a riff on the 1962 horror Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, uh, which was also produced, by the way, by Robert Aldrich. It's just that both films are considered part of the psycho biddy or that hagsploitation subgenre. That one in which a formerly glamorous and now older woman has become slightly psychotic. And what gets me is why this film just didn't want to be its own thing. Why have you got to be so closely linked to an already established and loved body of work? When I see this sort of thing, it screams to me, remember that movie you loved? Well, here's something in a similar vein. It's just not quite as groundbreaking. It's not quite as well put together. In fact, it's nowhere near as decent as that other movie. And for the most part, with this one, that is completely true. That's not to say that there isn't brilliance in this thing, because there is. The murderous plot is sinister in this, and I love the very clever dog in this story. I love one in a horror movie regardless. And in fact, twice in this thing, I found myself going, what well, is a good boy? Such a clever boy. I always love to condescend when chatting to an on-screen pup. I've got to say that, but you know, it's true. I also love the final sting in this thing. I had completely forgotten the earlier setup and I love the payoff so much. This film gets a lot right. As I say, it is called Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice. Geraldine Page, Academy Award winner Ruth Gordon. Whatever happened to Aunt Alice? Where is she? Geraldine Page is Mrs. Maribel. Ruth Gordon is Mrs. Dimmock. One of them is a sweet little old lady. The other is a homicidal maniac. <laughs> Geraldine Page, Ruth Gordon. Whatever happened to Aunt Alice? In color, rated M. Whatever happened to Aunt Alice is more terrifying than what happened to baby Jane. And here is what the letterbox synopsis has to say about all this. A horrific tale with grave consequences. An aging widow hides a deadly secret which she will do anything to keep buried. And I do have an MVP this time around. I've pledged for Geraldine Page. She plays the lead in this of Claire Marable. And I think it's fair to say that it is chilling how she can act so despicably and yet hold her composure so together in this film. Now, Geraldine passed away at the age of 62 in 1987, and she only has one other horror credit to her name, which is The Bride. Uh, I enjoyed The Bride, but it was a massive, massive flop upon release, uh, especially for a Frankenstein film. I think, though, that the lack of success was more down to Sting's Frankenstein rather than her performance as the very cunning housekeeper, Mrs. Borman. But in Aunt Alice, she just simply hits the tone of this character perfectly. She carries the film completely. In fact, she elevates it above most of the other horror fare that came out in this year. She's quite incredible in this role. And it warms my little dead heart that 18 months before her death, she won an Academy Award for her performance in The Trip to Bountiful. 
Now, we all know that the Academy just will not give them out for horror films, but we also know that they delay it just a few years and then they give one out for some other thing as a sort of hidden apology because they're such a bunch of corporate dicks. And, of course, I like to think that that's what's happened here. So, yes, my MVP, and she won an Academy Award for this very performance, it's Geraldine Page. This one is scored by the incredible American composer, Gerald Freed. And as I talk to you now, he is sitting comfy at the ripe old age of 94. I think he is most famous for his work on Star Trek, for Gilligan's Island and also The Man from Uncle. But if you want horror credentials, you got them. We're going to begin with The Vampire in 1957. Then a year later in 58, he did Curse of the Faceless Man, I Bury the Living and The Return of Dracula. Heading over to 1962, he did the American remake of The Cabinet of Kiligari. And of course, this movie was 1969. In the 70s, not so much stuff, but some classics. We've got Ted Post's exploitation masterwork, The Baby, from 73. And then we've got a really cool TV movie from 77 called The Spell. And another made-for-TV one that I don't know called Cruise into Terror, which came out a year later. So that's going to give you some of the context. And the reason I gave you that is because, well, this score to whatever happened to Auntie Alice... It's a bit mad. It's so eclectic. I just don't know if it was scraps of what he had or he actually just thought, you know what, this movie's crazy. I'm just going to go crazy as well and we're going to see what happens. And big thanks to whoever you are. Someone called the concluding chapter of Crawford. They uploaded the whole thing to YouTube so I can listen at my heart's content. And it is a thing of beauty. It ranges from like TV kitchen sink drama stuff to light jazz. And it's like the best light jazz as well. And then you've got these spooky fueled screeching strings uh, with all that spectacle that you think a horror film would have behind it. And all that comes together in the space of 10 minutes. It's proper weird how he crams it all in and then comes out the other side just having somehow made a cohesive work. Good on you, Gerald. And I know what's happened here. I've sold it to you, right? So where can you find this thing to watch? Well, you can pay to view it, and that means that there is no free streaming. Uh, but there's also a French DVD out there. It's pretty hard to locate, to be honest, right now, this one. I think it might be worth that hunt to you if that letterbox synopsis intrigued you enough. Uh, but for me, unless we get a massive 70s sort of exploitation box set from one of the big physical media giants out there, then I'm going to hold back. But yes, it is available currently, and it's how I watched it on YouTube, but the transfer isn't that great. So just a heads up for those of you that, like me, just couldn't wait. As for podcasts, well, the good news is that I found one. The thing is, I've yet to listen to this one yet, so I can't tell you if it's good or bad, but it is called Welcome Stranger Podcast. And their episode about whatever happened to Aunt Alice, well, that came out in January of 2021. And that's it. 
And again, you're just thinking these things. I can hear you. What could possibly be at a higher position than that? A beautifully shot Italiana sex piece from the 1960s with the vagina de tata flourish via late white torture porn staging. That's what we're giving you right now. The director here is Praro Shiva Zappa. And they did direct a few films, but this was the only genre piece. This one is quite difficult to describe, but I'm going to at least describe to you the feel of it. There is a mix of so many elements to this thing, but it does manage to come across as not a mess, which is one of the key things here. There's a splash of psychedelia, uh, some Lynchian aspects that really wowed me as well. It does get that weird at points. And here's a strange observation as well. It's definitely of its time, and it feels like a funky relic of a bygone age where flared trousers are coming in and parties are getting really wild. But I see all that as a positive with this and not a negative. I love this psychosexual Euro trash stuff. And when you boil this film down, it would probably just be thrown straight into a revenge genre for what it is. But as I say, it's more than that. It is The Laughing Woman. the private domain of the developed connoisseur. Exposing the obsessive bondage that very special men and women enjoy over each other with the internationally famous Philippe Leroy as Sayer, a sadist, expert in bizarre punishments, a complete master of the most exquisite techniques of mental and physical torture. Dagmar Lysander as Maria, his prisoner. Philippe Leroy and Dagmar Lysander. Quite unlike anything you have ever experienced before, the peculiar bondage in which both master and slave are inescapably trapped. never entirely forget this revealing motion picture experience. Here's that letterbox synopsis for you. I've read through it. doesn't give everything away, but it gives a fair bit, so you might want to skip 30 seconds. Dominance. Submission. Beautiful PR woman, Maria, finds herself trapped in the home of the sinister and troubled Dr. Sayer, where she is subjected to a series of increasingly bizarre, terrifying and degrading sex games. Sayer admits that he has murdered several women after that same ordeal, always killing them at the point of orgasm. But it's not all what it seems, and through a series of twists and turns, the whole situation is slowly turned on its head. Now, the real star here is Dagmar Lysander. She lifts this movie so high, she's so 
charismatic and she has appeared in several other Italian movies, including some soft porn titles like Black Emmanuel 2, The Pleasure, Sweet Teen. But I knew her face from something else, not the porn. I didn't know where it was from. I couldn't place it. So I looked it up and it turns out it was Fulci's Black Cat and also House by the Cemetery where she plays Laura. She is always a decent supporting cast member in these things. But as I say, she shows that in The Laughing Woman, she's just up for those real meaty roles. So because of that, I also checked out another of her films and it was directed by Mario Bava and it is called Hatchet for the Honeymoon. Now she's also the female lead in this one and again, she truly just elevates these giallos. And saying that then, I just can't wait to grab a copy of three more of them that I haven't seen yet. They're all jolly, giallos, jolly, giallos, giallies. Anyway, one of them's called Reflections in Black. That's from 1975. And the next one that I want to see is called The Iguana with the Tongue of Fire. Of course it is. That's from 71. And the one that I've already heard of and is already on my list is called The Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion. Now, I do believe that that title was recommended to me by Perrin Hayish, podcast regular guest. And he's just got the best taste in these things. So, yeah, I'm going with that one. The Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion. just heard the main theme sung by somebody called Olympia but the music behind it and the score itself the whole thing is composed by Stelvio Cipriani and I've got to admit to not being a fan of this one at all I'm not keen on the way that the voice is stretched really hard to hit those chorus notes it feels really awkward to me but here is the thing people love Cipriani especially giallo lovers and I've got to admit he does add that very late 60s, early 70s flavour to his score work. But the only thing that I recognise and I actually come back to is the score of A Bay of Blood that he did. Uh, and I thought that was alright. Again, it's not one that I love, but you know, I know it's decent. And the thing is, whilst I love the imagery of this movie, I love the way that it's locked into a time that is totally of its place and its date... I love that of this film. The soundtrack, it follows suit exactly, but I'm just not a fan of that. It feels too brash to me. And well, this is the thing. I'm not going to snag this off. I know people love it. I'm going to pick my battles with this. So we'll move on. Where can you find this film? Well, you can stream this one for free 
but only if you're hooked up with a BFI player. Uh, nothing in the USA that I could find. The BFI player is the UK one. But I can tell you that there is a Blu-ray out there. I did look for it, but it was quite expensive to buy. Uh, I did notice also on the letterboxed reviews that this fella called Sean Baker mentioned that the Blu-ray in question was by Mondo Macabre. And it features, and this is why I wish I had it, there is an interview on it with the writer and director, but also commentary by film scholar Kat Ellinger. Anyone that knows Kat's commentaries or her thought pieces know that she digs deep and she digs accurately and she always gives great personal opinions as well. Chuck in a video essay on the film's production design from Rachel Nisbet and that's that Blu-ray done. But if you're more into podcasts and you want to deep dive on this one, then I can head you in the direction of one. I recommend that you go to the Projection Booth podcast. They covered The Laughing Woman back in February 2020, a mere month before the plague hit. Ah, <sighs> the wonderful, 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 wonderful pre-plague pre times, times that we all, we all love so much, much before, before the plague, plague arrived, arrived on, these on these shores. shores. It's The Laughing Woman. Yeah, they said it wouldn't happen. They said it couldn't happen. They said, Paul, you got COVID. Don't do it. What are you doing, you silly man? Well, let me tell you what. I feel like if I put this off, then it's not going to be out in time. So many apologies. I'm not as sick as I was. It's all down to my wife giving me COVID. Blame her if it sounds weird. You wait till you hear the interview. I did that yesterday and I was really sick yesterday. But this is number one. And number one is important. I can't release an episode and not have number one. Be silly. So, my very favourite horror movie to be released in 1969. It is for the first time on A Year in Horror since we covered 1966. A movie that has only got a 7 out of 10 from me. As a plus though, it's the second foreign language film to reach my top spot. The first one was Troll Hunter in 2010. Although it is more of a documentary, I understand that, I understand that. But this time, we're heading off to Japan. It's set in 1925. Teruo Ishii is the director, and I just watched two of his other 1969 films, although he did release actually seven in total of that year. But I watched two of them. Orgies of Edo, I really didn't like that one. It's like an anthology film, but it's full of racism and animal cruelty to, to boot. It's just horrible. That's its through line, and it was a very tough watch. I also watched Inferno of Torture, and that one, I didn't mind that at all. I thought it was okay. A decent enough early example of an exploitation movie, but it had the most amazing bookended scenes. Uh, I feel like if the rest of the film lived up to those bookends, we would have easily had a different number one than we've got at the moment. So this director... He is at both ends of my chart. That's never happened before and I don't think it's going to happen again. And this movie is definitely a film of two halves. Once you get on the island in the second half, that's when the true horror segment of this thing begins. People are being sewn or melded together. What you're given is just this odd and yet bizarrely beautiful feast of odd-looking individuals. It's strange. Before that, though... 
things aren't as eye-popping as I say. We begin in a Tokyo cell in an asylum where there is a lot of women in one cell. Most of them are naked and uh, stabbing a man with a toy knife. That's what you get in the opening scene. And that lasts about five minutes. We then hop into this convoluted plot about identity and acceptance and what is the actual essence of what makes an individual an individual. They're heavy themes and they're not played for laughs, but it's not all serious either. It's a real odd mix, as I say, until you get to that halfway point, this film just, I wouldn't cover it at all. But as it is, it's my number one and it is called The Horrors of Malformed Men. Is a letterbox synopsis that is way too much. Feel free to just forward 30 seconds. Hirosuke, a medical student with almost no recollection of his past, is trapped in an asylum despite being perfectly sane. And I do apologise about some of this terminology, okay? I do apologise. After escaping from the loony bin and being framed for the murder of a circus girl, he spots a photo of a recently deceased man, Genzaburo Komoda to whom he bears an uncanny resemblance. By pretending to have been resurrected from the grave, Hirosuke assumes the dead man's identity, fooling everyone, including his widow and his mistress. But whilst at the household, Hirosuke recalls memories that convince him to travel to a nearby island, home of Jagaro, the web-fingered father of Genzaburo. <laughs> I'm so ill. Whilst on the island, Hirosuke not only discovers Jigoro's plan to build his ideal community by transforming perfectly normal humans into hideous freaks, but also the awful truth behind his own identity. Again, sorry, it was way too long. MVP time. Please welcome back to the show to make some sense out of all this nonsense. Our guest for this movie... It is the one, it is the only, the astronomer with a motor car. He is the tallest of all the people that I personally know. It's Mr. Mark Canali, and he's speaking with me all about the horrors of malformed men. Welcome to A Year in Horror, Mark. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right, mate. How are you doing? We both feel. Um, yeah. You're just getting over Lancriticisis. <laughs> Lancriticisis. No? Sounds like you'd make it. It does sound like you'd make it up, but it is a real thing, I promise you. Look, we've got a lot of Japanese names to get through today. Oh, I'm, God, we do. I'm giving up on a cinematographer. I'm just putting that out there now. <laughs> I'm not even sure who that is. <laughs> I've got Goodness. the list. Yeah. Right, okay, so yeah, just be aware, listeners, currently have COVID, so I might sound a bit uh, a bit weird, but I think it's doable. I did a test earlier, sounded all right, could hear everything. Horrors of malformed men. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a bit of a weird title anyway. I looked up the, the actually original Japanese title, and it, it could be translated as a dozen different things. 
So it could be, you know, fears of the deformed persons and things like that. But, you know, that that's the title that it's been given through the years in English. So we'll stick with that. Horrors of Malformed Men. Okay. On my rewatch, this was in the middle of my list. On the rewatch, it's now number one. But it's only got a seven out of ten. I'm currently got mm. one thing to go, which is the owl service. Do you think the owl service is going to pip it? Ooh, what that that TV show, the TV version, TV the shows, it's, it's less, yeah, less length than a Marvel Ooh. film. So I'm counting. It. <laughs> That's true. Oh, I have to admit, it's a, it's a good one. I don't know if it quite matches the imagery of malformed men, but it, it's one of those sort of things that kind of sticks with you. That when you're watching it, you're just kind of trying to follow it a little bit, and it's it's all very dated, and it all feels a bit kind of like what's going on, and it has that kind of low production value of sort of classic BBC style yeah. TV things. But at the same time, it does stick with you, particularly that intro sequence, because you end up watching it over and over again at the beginning of every episode. It's like it's brilliant. It, it, it does get through to you. Yeah, it does start getting through. So it's a hard one. It it, it might well do. It might well pip it. Right. Okay. I mean, I'm excited about it. Like it's yeah. The the thing is, 69 was for me hard work. There there wasn't a lot of great films, considering what came out the year before as well. It's crazy. So I'm going to ask you, Japanese cinema, which you love, like Mm. do you often head to this period, like the late 60s, heading into the 70s? No. This this is what I was going to say. I mean, before we even start talking about this film and this kind of period and the styles of this, you know, the the, the, the genre, if you want to call it, of what this film kind of represents, I think we should sort of say that we're looking at some really fairly extreme exploitative stuff um around this whole sort of period and we're, yeah i'm going to start talking about period in japanese cinema particularly this sort of low budget japanese cinema and it, it is something that we're probably going to use terminology that's what would be described nowadays as sort of problematic right. just because the the film where it came from and all of it uses language like that so we're going to use words like freaks and things like that that you wouldn't use now but in a way you have to use it when you're discussing this sort of stuff because not just because of its being a product of its time but because that's really what it's trying to do you know if you're talking about Todd Browning's freaks you're going to be talking about freak shows you can't it's really hard to talk about it with a modern vocabulary it was difficult when I covered it it was difficult I think we got away with it but bloody hell yeah. yeah, it's really hard to do that. And we're, we're not going to. I'm not going to be able to talk about this kind of genre without it sounding at certain points pretty terrible in some ways, because that, in a way, you can't get round that with these sorts of films. These films were about some pretty terrible things and depicted some pretty awful stuff, like, like a lot of uh, that sort of exploitation cinema at that time did. It's just what you've got to talk about. You have to talk about it within that context because otherwise, what are you going to do? So I just thought it's quite good to get out a little bit of a disclaimer at the beginning that yeah. you know we might we're going to be talking about some pretty crappy stuff in a way here. So yeah, in terms of Japanese cinema at the time, right? No, I don't normally go to it. In fact, this when you gave me the sixty-nine list, this one kind of stood out because there wasn't a huge amount else in there that was like standing out. But agreed. I saw this one and I'd actually started watching this on the Arrow player a few months before you sent me the list. 
and I didn't get through it. I, you know, I barely probably got about 20, 25 minutes through it and just kind of drifted away sort of thing. So when I saw it on your list, I thought, oh, right, okay, I'll, I'll try and, pro- you know, this will give me a reason to give it a proper yeah, go yeah. and actually try and get through it. And I'm glad I did because, crikey, once you it's, get to the halfway point. <laughs> it, the old switcheroo. Wowzers, just yeah. a bit. Yeah. So the Japanese cinema at this time, right, what you have is very much like Hollywood cinema. Through the 60s, you've got a studio system that's, that's struggling. A lot of the old masters, the, 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 the sort of the geniuses that were making films through the 40s and 50s, you know, your Ozus and, and people like that, they were, they were fading away. That sort of period of great cinema was starting to sort of drop away. People weren't going to the cinema as much. They were watching more TV and things like that. Exactly the same as Hollywood. It was struggling through that period. And so it was trying to find reasons to get people into the cinema. And of course, as is, as everywhere at that period, what was happening? Well, it was the sort of late 50s and particularly the early 60s. You were getting this sort of reduction in censorship. So you were getting this idea of a almost like a slight revolution in, in the sort of depiction of, of stories that involve things that would have been censored before. Right. Particularly sex, nudity, things like that. And, and again, that was that was happening in the West as well as it was happening in Japan. It's exactly the same thing. What's interesting is through that period, whereas in the West, it was kind of always kept very much sort of outside the mainstream they didn't like including in the mainstream so where you got a lot of sort of that kind of stag type movies or the kind of old sexploitation nudie kind of films you know soho after dark and things like that these kind of movies they're very much kind of outside the mainstream they're very low budget you know really tacky just knocked out for a few quid and stuck in weird little cinemas that people went to and what Japan, that didn't happen quite so much, probably because of a slightly different attitude towards sex and things like that. They didn't have that kind of Western Christian weird kind of attitude towards sex and violence. Yeah, violence is fine. Don't worry about violence, but show a nipple and, oh, my God, the world's going to come to an end. Whereas in Japan, you wouldn't have had that kind of thing. And so what happened was this this very same kind of idea. You got these slightly low-budget kind of movies, but they were made by the studios, like the smaller studios. And they did quite well. And what you would have is kind of relatively low budget things. And they got released in normal cinemas and people would go and see them. People yeah, got it actually got quite exciting. These were quite That's revolutionary bad. films at the time. And so um what happened was well, like anything, if you get things that make a profit, well, you make more of them. And so what happened is as the 60s went on, in Japan in particular, these movies started getting bigger and the production value started getting more there were lots of them and so what happened was you you got this sort of one-upmanship as well where you got this idea where you had to go a little bit further (laughs) and to show a bit more nudity so you you started to include more sort of violence in it or things like just more extreme sort of visual things and storytelling things these films were called pink films in japan that's the name they were given pinko yega and they became big business, particularly towards the late 60s. Very big business. And the big studios started doing them. The studio that did this film is Toei. And they're a big studio. In Japan. Yeah. And they were one of the big ones. You know, um, they, they did Battle Royale, for example. I mean, they're a you know, big, 
still are a big production studio. That logo is on everything. It's on it, isn't it? Yeah, the crashing wave thing at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, these these studios weren't afraid of doing it. Their attitude was, well, you know, it's it's making money, it's making profits. Let's do it, let's do it more. Let's let's, you know, the kids are loving it, they're, they're getting in the cinemas. And that's where this film came from. What's interesting is even after this film, because this, this film was quite a, a big one, particularly with the style of it. You moved into things like what was called things like pinky violence films, which to us is what what we would consider as the very sort of extreme exploitation thing in the sort of seventies, the kind of Ilsa, She Wolf of the SS kind of prison movies and stuff that would combine nudity and erotica with kind of torture and violence and all yeah. this certain sort of rape revenge type things. But of course, out of those films came things like the the, the female prisoner scorpion films. For example, I think the second one of that, Jailhouse 41, uh, Miyiko Kaji, I think that's one of the most extraordinary exploitation films ever made. Yeah. So yes, the quality is. was there, you know, it was production values quality. There is no comparison for these films in the West, because as I said, it was always kept very pushed out of the mainstream. So you never really got it. Even the Jess Francos and stuff, the guys in Europe that, you know, well, Europe had a much more lax attitude towards things. Even there, it never quite matched what happened in that period in japan and this film is probably right in the middle of it did they have like a drive-in culture at all like they did in america to have like the herschel gould and lewis's like find their feet and creating a fan base not really no no they, they wouldn't have had a culture like that that was probably pushed that probably existed because of the, the need for it to exist in american culture yeah that kind of idea of, of these films being watched, they wouldn't have been shown in mainstream cinemas. You would have had protests. You would have had films like that. We would in, in the States at that time in the 60s, you would have done, even with the counterculture going on. You know, it just wouldn't have been allowed kind of thing. Yes, once you get into the 70s in the States, it started, you know, you got that sort of element of it coming in. But I would say that people like, you know, Scorsese and Coppola and people like that, they kind of saved American cinema by being, you know, they were the, the wild things that did, that took classic American style and made it modern. And they saved American cinema like that. Japan didn't have that. That classic Japanese style kind of died out. So they were left with, well, what are we going to do? They had right. Yakuza films. That was, you know, the cinema was filled with Yakuza films, 60s cinema and this sort of stuff. This is how I see it, and I don't have the same sort of uh, sources of, of knowledge that you do from, from years of experience, but I see it as, like, around 64, you've got Onibaba, got Quaden. Yeah. And that's that's the sort of ones that we consider now to be, like, those sort of, I don't know, 60s classics. But yeah. there's a gap for me uh, until House in 77. Like, yeah. I would consider this classic. There must have been a, a wealth of stuff going on in between that. There was, but again, Japanese cinema was struggling. That's what I'm saying. It was really right. struggling to produce quality cinema. I mean, it was still there. There is still good stuff that was made then, but I, don't, I think it kind of lost its identity a little bit. And, and it was a struggle. And yet even you saying things like Hamsa, I mean, that's not what you would classify as a... Yes, it now you would look at it as yeah. almost like a classic of Japanese or a cinema, but that is a that's a you know an outlier of... You know, he was a the director of that was very much his own in his own world making movies. That was not indicative of Japanese cinema at the time. You know, it's watching bad, you, watching you know 
the, the 17th sequel of a Yakuza film. That was Japanese cinema at the time, the cinema that was coming through towards the late 70s and early 80s, you know, straight to video type stuff. You know, that Japanese cinema had a very different trajectory to American cinema because they didn't have, you know, the Scorsese's and people like that. Well, we, we, we say that, but this guy, and I'm going to try it, uh, Teru, <laughs> Teruo Ishii. Yeah, Teru Ishii. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this is, he's an interesting guy. He, he worked a lot in, in films through the 50s and stuff like that. And um, he'd mainly become famous again doing these sort of Yakuza stuff in the early 60s. Right. And I can't tell you, he made 12 sequels to his most popular Yakuza film over a period of about four years. I have a stat. Do you want it? Yeah, it's yeah, flipping mad. Like he died in 2005. He was yeah. 81 years of age, right? Mm. And that means for every year of his life, he made one film, right? And this is the thing. There's actually 82 on his list, but Supergiant, the artificial satellite and destruction of humanity mm -hmm. was in part one and part two, and they were 40 minutes each. So I'm combining them. <laughs> cruel there we go that's, yeah i mean that, that's, that's a lot that's what we've, we've just been talking about uh Miki as well we just we, we had a discussion about him he mm. you know he's he's the same kind of idea but obviously much more modern but these yakuza films these guys were making i mean they were very popular they were making money and they were low budget again studios loved them and my god they knocked them out i mean you know it, it was incredible the number they were knocking out and so this sort of um erotic uh grotesquerie type thing that you get coming through of these strange sadistic weird erotic movies that they started making this this he basically took that on he basically took that on and sort of started making this stuff mainly if we go back to this film it's mainly not really his imagination this film is his it was his, i think his biggie this this was the one i think he really wanted to make and there's the one reason is why is because of the writer of the original story, stories. The film is based on the writings of a guy, and here we go with the names, Edogawa Rampo, Brilliant. who was a novelist who wrote essentially mystery novels um, in the early part of the 20th century. So he started around about 1920-odd, and he just wrote lots of short stories. And if you take from the name Edogawa Rampo, it's actually the Japanese phonetic pronunciation of Edgar Allan Poe. That's what he actually took his name, turned it into sort of Japanese in a way and called himself that because he was obsessed with Poe. And he wrote a lot of stories, particularly in the first part of his career, that were kind of these sort of locked room detective stories. You know, this idea of you know, like, like like the room orc, you know, like Edgar Allan Poe's room orc. That's, that's what that story is about. It's a classic locked room murder story. You know, there was no way in and out. And here's a here's a body. How was it done? Love it. And he did a lot of this. What happened was, after a few years, he started developing this sort of rather strange style of including very peculiar plots and very peculiar characters into his stories. And he created twists and stuff in his stories that involved like freak show type things, or you know, sort of characters with deformities. You know, he would start including really weird sort of erotic type things, assaults and just utterly bizarre things alongside these really strange detective stories. And they became insanely popular. They, they became, Brilliant. because they're incredibly imaginative. I've, I've read 
the two stories that this film is based on, and they're, they're not the longest of novels. It's not like they're, they're, they're kind of short novels, but the, the kind of imagination used in them, particularly for that period of time, is quite insane. This movie has some of the most incredible imagery in it that you will see of a movie of its time, I think it's fair to say. The sort of imagery that kind yeah. of sticks with you. That is not the imagination of the filmmakers. That is the imagination of this guy, this writer, back in the 1920s. Because this is the stuff that he described. This is the stuff that he imagined and put in these stories. And it's quite incredible. The film is based on essentially two books. One is called The Strange Tale of Panorama Island. And the other one is called The Demon of the Lonely Island. They're essentially a combination of the two. However, the filmmakers also took bits of half a dozen of his other stories and plonked them in there in the film as well. It, It literally is just an amalgamation of all this guy's ideas. And sometimes it really pays for it as well. Sometimes it's, as I said, I couldn't watch it the first time I watched it, purely because it was so confusing. You could be describing the Goosebumps movie right now. <laughs> I want to watch that one. I think we need to delve into the look of this thing because mm. I found it to be a mixed bag. And I think it looks, the transfer on my copy is the Arrow Blu-ray. Yeah. I think it's amazing. It just yeah. looks great. That restoration is pretty, pretty good. Yeah. But some of the scenes are beautiful. It's a given. Some some of those scenes, some of those coastline scenes, some some of the, uh, the way they they block the deformed people yeah it's lovely like i love that but there's the scene when two women are naked in a sort of bathtub and it's really flat it just looks really flat it looks like a soap or something like that and it's such a juxtaposition uh, between these two looks Uh, is there a reason for that or am i misreading it um i think they probably worked pretty hard for that second half of the movie i think I think it lended itself maybe more to being, would I say, better looking. It was certainly more impressive on screen than some of those earlier parts. I mean, I think some of it's filmed, there's a lot of it that's filmed, say, things like Day for Night, which is always kind of hard. Sometimes that that doesn't work very well. You know, you have to, I think you have to be a particularly really good cinematographer to get that to work really well. And I think a lot of the time it seems that's not that great. And some of the low light stuff isn't that great either, you know, in the caves and things like that. But I suppose, yeah, I mean, I guess the the scenes in the house that you're talking about where the character's sort of taken the, the persona of this rich guy and he's now sort of integrating himself into his house with all his, with his wife and his lovers and things like that. And there's this kind of slightly yeah. bizarre bit of erotic thing going on that just doesn't seem to quite know what it's really doing at the why point. Why not? Why not? Well, that? why not? Yeah, but you know, I can see that sort of probably feels more a kind of standard 60s Japanese feel to it. It looks about the, the sort of normal lighting, the colours and things like that feels quite normal. I think the, the point is when you get later on, that becomes so crazy. You know, the use of colour later on is so, so much more intense. And that first bit feels much flatter, feels much, which it is. I mean, ultimately, the story is much flatter as well, because he's supposedly setting up the mystery with that first half of the film. You know? But it's a thing where I think there is this removal of, they've got a completely different culture. People might see films in a completely different way than we in the West would. Although I think now, 
like the the blend of the cultures it's very difficult maybe to to separate them it's just oh, the language barrier but at this point like i can definitely tell that this is a foreign film yes i mean japanese films are always going to have a slight sense of the other two of them if you're western because there is a, a disconnect to some degree i mean i'd argue that narrative is still narrative and i'd argue that the emotions are still the same and i'd argue that boobies are still boobies you know that that doesn't change wherever you go. I mean, if if they're used in a particular way, it's probably for the same reason they would have been done anywhere else. You know, it's like and <laughs> that's what I think. Anyway, there's there's always going to be a grounded part of it that you know you're going to be able to understand. Is what I'm saying. So, with all this being said, what is the thing that makes this exceptional where other films weren't so exceptional? What made you choose it other than the, the other films on the list? Well, I chose it purely because I thought it was an interesting sounding film. That was why I started watching it in the first place when you read the synopsis about it. But I think the whole point is that the synopsis does it so little justice. There is literally no way you could describe this film in any succinct way that would do it any justice. I mean, I tried putting together, I expected you to ask me for a synopsis and I actually tried to write one. And it's like, you know, that in itself was sort of like, Every almost every other word, I was like, "Well, that word just contains like so much that you could say about the film." Just that little bit that I've just written, and it covers ten minutes of a film that I've never seen anything quite like that before in my life. You know, that's the key. That's the key. That's it. I mean, what happens after that kind of halfway point when they when they go to the island? The first sort of almost fifty odd minutes, you ha- you kind of have to suffer through to some degree. It's confusing as hell. And then it kind of starts making sense. And then there's some kind of bad comedy that really feels very dated. And then it kind of makes a bit more sense. And then it gets really confusing again as people start dying and stuff like that. And you don't know what's going on. And and then they decide to just travel to this island to see his father. And then it's just like, it just goes so far beyond anything you're expecting. So you got this chap, there's this guy who plays his dad. And it's an actor called Tatsumi Hijikata. Tatsumi Hijikata. And this guy was one of the founders of the dance uh, movement called Buto. I don't know if you've heard of it. I haven't. And it's a Japanese um, style of dance. And it's founded in the 60s, I think, around about then. And he was one of the guys that founded it. And that's that's his movements. You know, the bit where he's sort of next to the water. And he does these kind of movements and all the poses and the twisty things and the writhing. That's Buto. And it it is like that. Watch it. Yeah. If you watch stage performances of it, I've seen it live. I mean, that is it's what it's like. It's it's a very peculiar thing, but it's quite amazing in a way as well. Um, for example, and it's used a lot in sort of Japanese horror films as well. I mean, for example, the actress that played Sadako in Ringu, yep. the original Ringu, um, Rie Inu, she was a Buto dancer. And that's the movements that, that Sadako does, you know, after she's sort of, when she's walking in the table. That is, that's, that's kind of the Buto movement. And obviously what they've done is filmed it backwards and then reversed it. So, yeah. you know, it adds that kind of weirdness to it. But that kind of movement thing, that's how they move. So you've got this kind of thing going on with this guy who's like this bizarre movement. And then these people just turning <laughs> up. And, you know, you get the first bit 
that's like it reminded me a bit of kind of planet of the apes or something you know those bits where the app you get these sort of the, the sort of ape noises and these sort of people so human strange. animals sort of like leaping around and like and people being led by chains and stuff and these noises and sounds and screaming and at this Run point, me and you were both in, right? We're like, oh, oh I mean, at that point, well, I, at this point, I'm like, okay, where's this going to go? Well, I'll see where it's going to go. We're going to have, like, mermaid women eating, you know, being thrown fish food and coming up to the surface of the river. And he, Meanwhile, as you can see in my background, the boats with, you know, a golden painted woman sort of on the bow of the ship with her legs, you know, akimbo and fire burning from it. And, you know dangerous these human statues sort of posed and then the riverside and and then you suddenly you've got like people that appear to have been surgically attached to sheep stuff and then yeah i'm just sort of picking the odd bits out here and it just gets further and further and further people in cages with no faces being fed grass through the bars you know it's like and the strange noises they make as well sounds and this and you know you just get this series of imagery after the other that you've i mean it's disturbing yeah it's just fascinating just because it's if you have any interest in horror and things like that, that's this is what you're there for, right? This is for these sort of weird transgressive kind of what is going on, uh-huh. you know? And Siamese twins that have been formed by being sewn together, you know, so a beautiful woman and a hideous male, you know, surgically connected together, kind of thing, and utterly bizarreness and so many things. I've just got things <laughs> written down, you know, just watching it. <laughs> You know, the chair, exclamation mark. I remember watching oh, it and sending goodness. you a screenshot of the chair. And that is from a Rampo story. And it's called The Human Chair. You know, it's like, you know, the idea of sort of touching someone up by creating a cavity in the chair uh-huh. and uh-huh. hiding it. So when a woman sits in it, you can kind of feel <laughs> it's, it's, like, yeah. you're watching it on the screen. Absolutely. Just a, yep. I know it's a never-ending kind of stream of this imagery and stuff, and and it it just that's what you're there for. That, as you say, is that's it. You are all in at this point. You're just like what, even the ending and stuff like that, which we won't discuss. But you know, the final shots and everything. You, normally, if that was just as part of a film, you'd just be like, what, what the fuck is that? At the end of this film, you, it's almost like you pop in champagne, champagne corks at the end. Just well, we do get the longest exposition dumps now without spoiling. Oh it, my god, do you yeah. think that it earned that? Because I felt, no. I, I felt like, oh, at least I know what's going on, but it just went on and on and on. Yes, it's so funny. It's like that is again, Rampa, that is him. So with his original story, the, the idea of the guy at the beginning, the rich taking over the rich guy's life, you know, sort of coming into this guy that's died and then pretending he's to, to be him, to then have it. What in the original story is, he then builds this island. This is his island. 
that he builds. Yep. And he wants it to make it like the sort of Garden of Earthly Delights. So in the original story, it's got it's got none of the kind of mutants and sort of sort of grotesquery and oh, stuff wow, like that. It's okay. all sex and it's all just beautiful, you know, maidens running around everywhere and orgies and stuff like that. I'd prefer that. <laughs> right. I don't want to rock up to that either. <laughs> The point is, you know, the, the guy then pops up in the middle of in the middle of this bit of the film and just sort of goes, Hello, I've been following you, and I know I'm now going to tell you who committed all the murders and did all <laughs> randomly. It's like, hello. Yeah. You knew <laughs> at the beginning the film. He, he was something. He had more, yeah. but, but it, that's it, in that's in the book. That's in the book. That's how the book ends. And it's like it, it, they've kept it all in there, and it's it's really so stupid you're right it does kind of explain all the bizarre setup of everything and you know it does sort of explain who this kind of weird sort of housekeeper guy who's just been going around sort of poisoning people and stuff like that and who the main character is and you know it gives away all those sort of bits but it is so stupid isn't it it's just so hilarious that this guy just pops up and saves the day you know, kind of, where have you even been? You know, who are you? You were in one shot like earlier on, just like, yeah. looking at someone, and that was it. The and then all is, of a sudden, here you are. You are like Poirot. I was giving this an, an eight until that exposition dump. And I liked the exposition dump because then I got the film, but I was yeah. just like, oh, this is too much. You could have done this in a different way. Uh, to me, it would have been like a 10, but, you know, I took off like one mark for the. Um, the opening half an hour because the first time you watch it you literally just have no clue what i mean go back and watch it again it kind of makes some sense but you have no clue what's going on in that first half an hour and that exposition dump that that takes away a bit so but wow yeah that is funny so coming to it 52 years on does always have malformed men does it hold up can you recommend this to someone I would definitely recommend it. Absolutely. If only because I don't think you'll have ever seen anything quite like it. You know, I mean, I've listed a few bits and bobs, but even me describing it doesn't quite, you know, there's no way of literally describing those shots and scenes and characters and figures. And, you know, some of it's going to stick in your head, you know, just did the body horror of it. Okay. It's not, it's not got the quality of the sort of Cronenbergian kind of effects, but at the same time, just the ideas that are on show there, you do kind of get a bit freaked out just by who thought of that kind of yeah, thing. 69, for goodness <laughs> sake. It's a long well, time before no, it's not. Anyway. That's the point. Yes, the film is 69, but these these descriptions, are this, this is being made from descriptions from 1925. Flipping hell. You know, these yeah. things aren't, you know, they were, they were showing it on screen. That's what's very 1969. That could never have been done before. That's what I'm saying earlier about yeah. this film being kind of important in the sense that you know that was the this was the only time that they could do this. That's why it was an important film for the director because he clearly loved this writer as a kid. This is you know, and he obviously has always wanted to to make these film, make these stories into a film. But how do you do that? How do you show stuff like this? It's like it's absolutely mad, absolutely madness. So does it stand up? Yes, I still I still think imagery and and so on. I think. Any horror fan is just going to watch this and still come out of it having at least, yeah, at the end, walk away thinking, What did I just see? Yeah. What have I just seen? I don't think it will disturb people as much as it may be used to. And I certainly don't think everyone's going to quite follow it 
terms of the story, but just from the imagery. I I think it's a, an important historical thing. Like I'm so glad I bought it. Like and, and now I've found my favourite film of the year, uh, which is great. But at the same time, it's you can't get away with that beginning. I think and get like the top top banner no. or an amazing film from the 60s you can't do that no and it does feel quite dated at the beginning as well it does have a very i mean the, the you know yes you've got that you've got the kind of asylum scene right at the beginning and even if you compare that to the, the film we discussed um page of madness you know it's not made anywhere near as well as that you know page of madness is much better and the same idea with the kind of idea of the asylum and sort of people dancing and going crazy and stuff but this one just feels like oh lots of boobies you know it's literally just feels like that you know but apparently asylums are just full of young naked women jump running around groping each other that's yeah, it that's, you know? that's a weird one and, you know in the comedy bit like when he's sort of when the body's found not the body when he's found you're know, impersonating the body kind of thing oh he's not really dead that whole scene takes about 10 minutes and it's it's really dated yeah. in terms of the comedy and everything and i wrote that that so yeah the first 45 minutes or so is a bit of a struggle to get through, but well worth it if you do okay again thank you so much for going into the details of the the period um mm -hmm. i love that from you thank you i need to know though <laughs> as always like i want you to do a fantastic double bill so you have this one um i've chosen one but i I want to know if you've gone the same route. Oh, I mean, the, the, the obvious one was Freaks, as we discussed earlier on, Todd Browning. But I thought, okay, that's that's pretty good. But it's it's probably too obvious in where it's sort of coming from. So I'm going to go with um, Holy Mountain, Jodorowsky. Wow. Um, 73. I get that. Just, well, just the imagery. Just the imagery. I mean, it, it, you know, the Holy Mountains are slog to get through as well, apart from the fact that it will leave these images in your head that you'll have never seen before you know they're, they're astonishing images of stuff you know it's looking at screenshots is all you really need to do for the holy mountain a lot of the time don't you it's just that and that i think fits really well with the film i think it's going to be a heavy double bill i have to admit you know you're in for the long run there aren't you that's that's the <laughs> take, take plenty of coffee with you for that next time you come round, i've got them both let's let's just do it um my choice <laughs> was Island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, but the disastrous 96 one, Val Kilmer, Marlon Brando. Fruit yeah. Fruit. I'm often thought to actually have been, to have actually come from, to, to derive from the um, Rampo stories, but it doesn't. Right. It's actually, it has been described as being, oh, is it, a, a, you know, did that sort of idea come from it? But it's not. It's from a very separate story because I saw that when I was doing my research. But yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I, purely because of the madness towards yep. the end. Uh, just bonkers filmmaking. I can only imagine what uh, what this would have been like filming on set for those end set pieces uh, yeah. before they get to the caves. It's just, what are you doing? Like, can oh. you imagine the actors walking around going, oh my God, what am I in? <laughs> what did I sign up for? Crikey. I know. <laughs> you do wonder that kind of thing, don't you? It's like, I mean, Japan is going through a very strange period at the moment with it's now catching Hollywood up to some degree with its sort of workplace, you know, Me Too movement type stuff. But my God, you think in those days, what was going on there? Uh -huh. Yeah, no, I mean, like literally, right, everyone? Okay, can we all put the change around your necks? Right, so if we could all stop. <laughs> Don't make me laugh, I've got on. COVID. Stop it. <laughs> 
Here we go. Here we go. Oh, oh dear. And that noise. <laughs> that's that's a pretty good impersonation of it. Oh, yeah. I do my best. Um, Mark Canali, thank you so much for coming on. No worries. Thank you. Hajim Kubiragi, who died in 2014. This score is something else. I don't think I'm going to be coming back to it, don't get me wrong, because it is a lot. And when I say that, normally it's just too much, it's too all over the place. It's an unbearable thing that I don't like at, at any point, but that's not the case here. There is a lot going on with this. It's just all played to perfection. It's just not stuff that I'm usually into. Uh, and whilst I do admit I really do enjoy that they've included this sort of early 70s American TV cop show vibe and let me tell you this thing is full of it even though this is a Japanese film from the 60s I mean that is nuts just to say that but I will be fair to it it does truly excel when it goes for setting a spooky atmosphere which is again at odds with what this film is because it isn't that type of film I love the use of the harpsichord here and those evocative strings. They give me a little buzz too. But when the horns get involved on a track like Palace Dance, I really hate it. It's just not for me. It's no matter how well put together this thing is, certain bits really rub me the wrong way. And before I disappear on this side of things, I also want to mention that the sound designer on this movie is named Hiru Nozu. And it's almost comical in places, like when a bad guy's flee after a death takes place. You get this cartoon zoom effect, uh, which is just really ridiculous, absolutely stupid, and takes you completely out of the film. But when you're on the island of the malformed men, they've got this monkey and dog noise ADR'd for them. And as Mark and I mentioned in the chat, that side of things is great. They sound utterly grotesque. It's incredible. So, again, swings around about strange, strange film, this. And I know I haven't really sold it, but I'm really disappointed with 69 because I expect, you know, a number one to be at least an 8 out of 10. But if I've intrigued you enough, where can you find it? Let me tell you. My internet is actually down as I record this. That's what happens when you live in a tiny village every now and again. Poof, just everything goes. But I do know that I've got an Arrow Blu-ray, so I can presume that it's on the Arrow player, and that means that if you want to rent it from one of your channels, like Amazon Prime or something, it's going to be on there. As for podcasts, well, in January 2020, the Projection Booth podcast, they went deep into the horrors of malformed men. And if you want something that sort of spoils the whole film and goes through it bit by bit, this episode is an epic two-hour-long retreading that you can't miss. It should be the be-all and the end-all. The one stop that you go if you want to fill your malformed boots. And that's it. That's my number one. That's me with COVID, the horrors of malformed men. 
That's it. That's your 1969 episode done. As I said, it isn't the best year, but there are still plenty of gems in there, right? So, anyway, let's choose what we're going to be dealing with next month, shall we? I'm going to dip into the bag right now. Chuck the bag away. 1980. Instantly, there are so many amazing films from 1980. Uh, I'm thinking instantly. Cannibal Holocaust, The Shining, The Fog, Dressed to Kill... There is a mad amount of stuff. Um, Battlestar Galactica on TV. Hammer's House of Horror on TV as well. Th these are just at the top of my head. Um, okay, that's going to be a huge difference compared to this 1969 episode for sure. 1980 is huge. Oh, do you know what? Again, I'm really excited. There's going to be loads of 1980 stuff that I haven't seen yet as well. Ah, oh, good, good, good. Right, okay. Feel free to contact the podcast at yearinhorror at gmail.com with any films that you think I might have missed. You can follow me at Walla Not Weller. I'm on Letterboxd there and Instagram. Or you can hit me up at Not Weller Pod. I'm on Twitter. But on Letterboxd, I have listed all the years that we've tackled so far. I've attached the films to the proper positions as well. On Bandcamp, you can now go over there and listen to all the music. Just type in Bandcamp A Year in Horror. Don't forget about the Patreon. I really do appreciate it. Uh, that's patreon.com forward slash A Year in Horror. There is this £3 here, which will help me keep the show running. And now we do have several people who are actually joined at that tier. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. There is also a £4 tier, and it's the same as the £3 tier, i.e. it really does help the show keep going. But be aware, with that £4 tier, you're going to be able to open a ton of exclusive content. Regardless, any contribution that you make to A Year in Horror, it's going to be put back into making this regular, original, specialist content for you. But most importantly, you are going to have a warm, fuzzy glow that you just get for helping out the show. Yeah, there we go. Patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. Before we go, I just want to say a super big thanks. Thank you to my wife, Claire Waller. Um, she does all the Photoshop posters for each episode and that science fiction corner jingle, the spooky jingle. We've got One Trick Pony. They designed that Ace logo and that calendar designed for the thumbnail. Max Newton and Lucy Foster, they actually composed the A Year in Horror theme music. And the guests for this one, we've got regulars, Benjamin Bowles, Mark Canali, Nikki Jones. We've got the special guests, Lono, George, Bunty and Kevin Lyons. But most of all, it's you lot. Thank you for listening to this to the very, very end of the podcast. I'm going to see you next month for a huge one. I can only imagine it's going to be a three or four parter. 1980. It's going to be huge. A year in horror. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. Ever you do.